Welcome to Parkview, everyone. Put this on social media. You all are sick. Really, you have soul issues. It is fun, isn't it? I mean, you got to admit, even if you're not a Cub fan, I, I'm in. Just because the, the whole Back to the Future thing is so bizarre, isn't it? Back to the Future 2, in case you don't know, in 1989 predicted that the Cubs would win the World Series in 2015. Here's the clip. Lightning struck that thing 60 years ago. Wait a minute. Cubs win World Series. Against Miami? Yeah, it's something, huh? Who would have thought? Hundreds of one shot. I wish I could go back to the beginning of the season, put some money on the Cubs. I just, it's crazy, isn't it? Um, it's funny when I, when I went back and looked at that clip because when you, uh, when you take yourself, for those of you who are old enough to take yourself back to 1989, when we looked forward to what we thought 2015 would look like, you know, take the Cubs in or out of the equation either way, it's pretty crazy. They had flying cars, right? They didn't need roads. The DeLorean just took off and started flying. It seemed like everything was going to be so much better in 2015. We'd have computers and robots to do everything. Everything would be so easy. Let me ask you a question. Those of you that remember 1989, does it feel like life is easier now? <laughs> or is it just more complicated, just busier than ever? I mean, we have better tools. There's no doubt about it. This was your uh, cell phone back in <laughs> 1989. Anybody remember this bad boy? Yeah. Okay. So, so some things have gotten better, but, but the truth of the matter is all we have are more distractions. All we have are more things that get in the way and compete for our soul. Sometimes I kind of wish for the days back the last time the Cubs won the World Series, you know, 1908. What was life like back then? Or, or even back the last time they were in the World Series, which was 16 years before I was born, I'm just saying. I mean, what was it like back then? You know, you just shoot your own dinner and go to bed at 8 o'clock because you didn't have anything else to do, right? And that's why we're doing this series on the soul. Jesus said, what does it benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your soul? He wasn't talking about eternity. He wasn't talking about spending eternity in heaven or hell. What I believe Jesus was saying was that it is possible to be saved for eternity and still live a hell-like existence on this earth. Last week, we looked at the difference between us and the animals. It was this. The Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground, and God breathed breath into his nostrils, the breath of life, and man became a living soul. I'm not saying that there won't be animals in heaven, just not cats. <laughs> Look, I got no cubs to pick on. What am I going to do? I got to go somewhere else, okay? Well, really, the Bible tells us there'll be animals in heaven, but they won't have a soul. It's not going to be like a Disney movie where you're having a conversation with your pet. They don't have a soul. We are the beings that God gave a soul to. That's why we need to talk about the soul man. 
okay? Last week, I talked about the reticular activation system, this little bundle of nerves in the back of your skull through which everything is filtered so that you're paying attention to certain things that are coming in and not paying attention to other things along the way. And I said, what we need to do if our soul is going to be good is we need to make sure we set it at the right place. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set, right, on what the Spirit desires. And the mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. So you have a decision to make. You can set your reticular activation system towards the Spirit and have life and peace, or you can set it towards the flesh and have death. So what we need is to have a restored soul. What we need is to set our minds on the things that God wants and follow God so that we can have a restored soul. I was using that term this week. I was kind of just thinking it through and I thought, well, where's a good scripture for that? I I wanna dig into a scripture and this is the one that makes the most sense for me. I'm going to unpack this 23rd Psalm. Now, if, you, if, you, if you're new to church and you, you, you don't know much Bible, this might not make any sense to you, but a lot of you probably grew up, you knew this one, one of the most famous passages of Scripture. Would you just read it with me? And, and let's, let's unpack what it would look like to have a restored soul today. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. He restores my soul. If if you're feeling like I am today, if you're feeling like, you know what, my soul is not where it ought to be. I sure thought 2015 was going to look different than this, and my soul's not where it ought to be. How is it possible for him to restore our soul? Well, again, we're talking about the things that we can do to help out with our soul. So the first thing I noticed from this is that we must admit our sheepness, all right? If the Lord is my shepherd, that means I'm a what? A cow. Thank you, ma'am, from Chicago. I'm a sheep, okay? Right, okay? You have to admit that, that, that uh, the sheep, I mean, think about this. I mean, we're in baseball season, right? Do you ever think about the, the baseball mascots, the team's names, you know? I mean, it's kind of weird. I mean, like in football, you got like lions and bears. You got these, uh, you know, these, these really like scary kind of names. In baseball, you got a bunch of birds, right? You got the Blue Jays. You got the Orioles. Somebody gave me this card this week. They said, dearest Tim, God may protect the sparrows, but the cardinals, not so much. Thank you. Thank you so much. Think about baseball mascots. What's a Houston Astro? Ruh-roh. I don't know what an Astro is. Do you? I mean, what's a Met? What's a Dodger? We have different colored socks. I mean, at least the Cubs are baby bears. Let's give them that. But here's what you're never going to hear. You are never going to hear of a team. If you do, I want to know it. A team named the Sheep. The Cleveland Sheep, right? The Miami Lambs. You're not going to hear that. Do you know why? 
Because sheep are pretty much the dumbest animal that there is. If you let them, or some things I learned about sheep this week, if you let them, a sheep will eat itself to death. Like the people you see at Golden Corral. Be like, really, exactly like that. And they wander around. They'll wander right off the side of a cliff. They're just that dumb. You know, they pollute the ground that they're eating on. They defecate on the ground. And they make themselves, they're nasty, smelly animals. Sheep, this is one thing I thought was hilarious. They don't have a reverse button. Okay? So, so if, like, they get wedged in between a rock or something... They don't know how to back up. They'll just keep going and keep going and keep going. Is the analogy starting to sound familiar? Right. Sheep are very stupid. If you don't believe me, watch the fourth one through on this video, and you'll see what I mean. Two, three. Oh, come on. we got to see it again. That was awesome. One more time. I want to see it. One, two. I think I'll jump. That's how dumb sheep are, all right? This is, not, this is not a nice analogy that David is giving us here. One sheep expert said, no other class of livestock requires a more delicate and careful handling than does a sheep. So what is David saying? Does David understand sheep? Yeah, he was a shepherd, remember? What David is saying is, hey, I'm dumb. I need a shepherd. I'm glad the Lord is mine. Let's just say it all together, all right? I'm dumb. I need a shepherd. I'm glad the Lord is mine. See, if you can start in that place, if you and I can start in the place where I realize I need a shepherd because I'm a sheep and I'm going to do dumb things to myself, that's where the beginning of the remodeling of my soul can happen. You got to realize how vulnerable you are. The second thing is, then I've got to let the shepherd lead. It's one thing to admit my sheepness. It's another to let him lead. The Lord is my shepherd. I'm sorry, I went too far. Go back me up one. The Lord is my shepherd. I have everything that I need. I have everything that I need. I love the way the New Living Translation puts that. I have everything I need. Because I memorize it as, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Right? Um, Whatever. That doesn't sound the same. I have everything I need. Because you know you will want, and I know I will want. But if I'm going to have a remodeled soul, I need to understand that the shepherd is really taking care of me. Look at what it says. He makes me lie down, right? Okay, one of the things I learned about sheep is that there's a pecking order in sheep, just like there is in, in most of the animal kingdom, just like there is with everybody. But what they do is they headbutt each other. You've seen like big horn sheep and rams do this, right? I mean, this is what they do. So the sheep will be sitting around and one of them will just decide to be a little bit bigger than the other one, a little bit better than the other one, and they'll start headbutting each other. They will literally do that. They will butt heads. So if somebody ever calls you that, you know what you're talking about. If that's what they will do. They will come in and they will say, I'm better than you. I'm bigger than you. I want to assert myself over you until the good shepherd shows up. And once the good shepherd shows up, everybody knows that he's in charge. And they usually stop butting heads. And that's when they can lie down and relax. They will not lie down if there's tension. But when the shepherd's there, they will lie down. Where will they lie down? In the green pastures. In the green pastures. That's where the, that's where the shepherd will lead you if you will let him. 
You may not believe it, it may not seem like it at the time, but he's going to take you to the green pastures. One of the reasons we have a bad soul is because we don't believe the shepherd is capable of leading us to the right place. And the other part of that problem is that usually whatever place he leads me to, I'm always looking at somebody else's green pastures and thinking that they're doing better than me, right? I'm looking at the Jones's grass and it's so green over there because they have an irrigation system and a professional fertilizer company that comes out six times a year, right? I mean, and so I, I, he leads me to these places, but I don't necessarily believe that they're the right place. He leads me to green pastures. He, he leads me beside the still waters. A sheep won't drink from running water because they are so fearful. They are a very fearful animal. That's why the shepherd's relationship with sheep is so important. But if you let him, he will lead you to the place he needs you to be. He will lead you to the quiet waters. Usually it's me who keeps wandering off and going somewhere else. Usually it's me who keeps going over and thinking the white water over here looks like fun. But if I will allow God to do it, if I will quiet myself, if if I will chill long enough to let God lead me every day, he will lead me to the still waters. He will lead me to the right place. And I've been preaching a lot about this lately, but when you let God lead you, when you seek first the kingdom and all this other stuff gets added to you, the green pastures are unbelievable. They are things that you would have never, ever imagined in your life. Let me give you an example. Several weeks, three weeks ago, I told you about our new Linux campus and we've got property bought there. We're going to start building on a campus in new Linux. Last week, I told you about the safe house. We've been working on this for two years. Um, and we've been really hoping we get a, a free house that was donated and, and the safe house, it just got approval last week, two weeks ago, and we can open it up and by Christmas we'll have sex traffic girls out of the streets of Chicago in this wonderful home. And I announced that last week. It's amazing. <laughs> Finally happened. But, but last week I said, I got something else to tell you next week and you got to come back. So this is what I'm telling you next week. A few weeks ago, we were approached by a church in Homer Glen, um, and we're presented with an opportunity to acquire their building, take over a very small uh, amount, really, of a mortgage on a building that's worth way more than that, and expand the ministry of Parkview there. It's a beautiful building in a great space. Uh, it was the Eagle Rock Church, if you know what I'm talking about. They came to us, and they said, hey, what, a, what if you guys, uh, you know, came in here, and we used this building for God's glory as a Parkview campus? And because because it's so close to the Lockport campus, it's going to only make sense for us to move our Lockport campus. We unpacked this last week over there. We're going to be moving Lockport campus over to Eagle Rock. Let me show you where it is. It's incredible, all right? This is where our three campuses will all lay out now. Uh, the Homer Glen campus is right off at 355 on 159th Street. Here's the next map. Go ahead and go to the next one. That's what the property looks like. Eagle Rock Community Church, you've driven by it, right next to Denolfo's Banquets. That's going to be our new campus, all right? Is that unbelievable? I mean, that's just something that God just brings to you. Go ahead and show some more of the pictures. Look at that. It's a beautiful six-year-old building. And the inside of it has 550 seats. We have 250 seats at our Lockport campus. And now we'll have 550. Look at how gorgeous it is. It's unbelievable. These are the green pastures that God is going to lead you to. And here's the deal. We're going to have this reopened by Christmas Eve. That's going to be the opening of this campus on Christmas Eve. That's incredible, isn't it? So, 
So here's what I, here's what I want to say to you, okay? If you live out that direction, Lamont, Lockport, Homer, or whatever, you're not a part of the Lockport campus, think about inviting somebody to come with you and go to that campus for Christmas Eve. We're going to have a bunch of services over there too, but this might be, some people just aren't going to drive all the way over here from there. The other thing I want to say is, you know, I talked about being partners with us a couple of weeks ago. Um, This is, we're going to have to put in parking. We're going to have to spend some money on this. We're taking over a mortgage note. This is not something we planned on. If you are able to jump in and help us and partner with us financially, if you're thinking you're going to do something year in and don't do it year in, do it now because this is just something God plopped in our lap and we're going to start putting parking in instantly and, and we could use your help because when God throws the green pastures and the still waters at you, you go. You go where he wants them you to go and we can't imagine what God's going to do through this campus. It's just an unbelievable, uh, unbelievable chance for us. Brand new campus pastor, everything's going to rock. He restores my soul. That's what he does if we'll let him. Wherever you were, this is where you can be. How does he do that? Well, he leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. I used to think when I was growing up that righteousness was about me being good enough, right? We've got to do the righteous thing. We've got to do the, the, the you know, we've got to be a man of righteousness. And, and, and that is about the right things, but that's what it is. It's not about being good enough to get into heaven. Righteousness is the right path, right? If, if you let the sheep, they will keep walking the same dumb path long enough that they will dig ruts in the road and they will end up breaking their legs. It's another dumb thing sheep do. But if you let God lead you on the right path, it will take you to the right place. The trouble is we don't always know the right place. So that's why we need to trust the word of God. That's why we need to be reading our Bible every day. That's why we need to be listening for the Holy Spirit and looking for the burning bush opportunity. That's why you need to be in a small group with people who can help you in your life and have accountability so that he can help lead you to the right place. That's why we set the reticular activation system over to spirit instead of to flesh. Because Paul said, we we need to abstain from the sinful desires because what are they doing? They're waging war. They're waging war against your soul. If your soul doesn't feel very good right now, it may be because the things that are coming in are really, literally waging war on your soul. When we get done with the Soul Man series, we're going to do a series called Rivals because I I just need help, all the help I can get with the things that get in the way of God. And they're the big three, money, sex, and power. Money, sex, and power. We're going to talk about those in November because I want to help us with the things that wage war on our soul. I got to admit my sheepness. I got to let the shepherd lead. And then I got to trust the shepherd through the storms and the valleys. It's interesting in this psalm, in the first few verses where David is talking, he uses the third person pronoun. He makes me lie down. He leads me. He restores my soul. But in the next few verses, when he gets to the hard stuff, he makes it into a first person pronoun. He goes from talking about God talking to us uh, about God. He goes from talking to us about God to talking uh, directly to God himself. That's what's so important. He says, he restores my soul. He leads me in the right paths. And then he says, when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, look at this. When I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you. You are with me. You are with me. Personal pronoun. Somebody sent me this picture. I thought it was worth sharing. (laughs) There's a Chick-fil-A ad in there somewhere. I, I, I don't know where it is. Okay. 
When I, when I walk through the valley of the shadow, David says, even the hard things that come along the way, even, even the tough times that come along the way, those times are when you are with me. I uh, didn't really understand the valley of the shadow of death until I went to Israel. This is a picture I took of Israel. I'm on the top of the Mount of Olives, and this is Jerusalem over here, the holy city and the wall around it. And this little valley down here was the valley of the shadow of death. Remember, this is the city of David. This was David's city as well. So this whole mound right here is why it's so important to everyone. Abraham, David, Jesus, all of this. It all goes together, right? And in between the Mount of Olives, when Jesus is walking down the triumphal entry, he's literally walking through the valley of the shadow of death. It is the oldest active cemetery in the world. Many people were buried there. I know it doesn't look scary, but what it literally was was a, was a cemetery. Even though I walked through the valley of the shadow of death, no matter how fearful or painful or uncertain life might be, what does he say? You are with me. You are with me. Philip Keller, who is a shepherd, wrote from his perspective, I came to realize that nothing so quieted and reassured the sheep as to see me in the field. Again, they can lie down. Again, we can trust him. I will fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. You know what it's like to, to be in a scary place, but to have somebody with you is just comforting, right? Oh, what, whatever the situation, out, out in the woods, dark basement, whatever, you just know it was better to have somebody with you. One pastor wrote and said when he was a boy growing up, there was a little country store just a, a, a few, half a mile down the road, and his mom would send him down to get milk or eggs or whatever down to the country store, and sometimes he would have to go at night, and he was really afraid of the dark. So he said, every time I had to go at night, I would take my little brother Jerry with me. He said it was really dumb because Jerry couldn't do anything to protect me, you know, but it just felt better to not be alone. And then he said, besides, I figured I could always outrun Jerry if there was problems, you know I mean? <laughs> it's good to have somebody with me. Then he says, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. This is a shepherd's rod from Africa. It's very, very strong, hard piece of wood. And a shepherd back in that day could sit around, I mean, he's sitting around not doing a whole lot, right? He could take this rod and use it to throw at a wild animal that was coming by. And I'm going to tell you, if you could feel how heavy this thing was, it's way heavier than a little baseball bat. He could get good at throwing this and hitting an animal and at least scaring a wild animal off or, or maybe killing a wild animal with his club. Or especially if it got close enough, he could whack it. The the other thing he would do is if the sheep was wandering off, he would throw the club on beyond the sheep and the sheep would hear the noise and turn around and start wandering back again. Your rod protects me. Your staff protects me, right? You've all seen this in some Christmas production. It's got this little hook on the end of it. Why? Again, so the shepherd could grab the little lamb and bring him back onto the path of righteousness, back to the place where there's green pastures, back to the still waters, back to the place he's supposed to go. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Is that important? Yeah, because I am dumb. I need a shepherd. I'm glad the Lord is mine. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. There should be comfort for you knowing that his rod and his staff are there to help keep you on the same path and on the right path and to protect you from the things that are around. 
Then he goes on, he says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Again, another way of saying, I'm going to be here for you. I'm going I'm to set the table and you're going to be able to eat in peace even though there's trouble all around you. A little girl got in trouble on the way home from church and parents were wanting to punish her, so they made her sit at a separate table at lunch, sit all by herself and think about what she'd done. Somehow they had allowed her to pray the prayer for the meal, and she said, Lord, I thank you that you have prepared this table before me in the presence of my enemies. She'd learn the 23rd Psalm. Sometimes you can use it. You, you, you got to understand that this is the opportunity for God to bring you back. No matter what else is going on, if the shepherd is there, if you will trust him, he will take care of you. It gets better. You would, I'm mad at myself for trying to do this whole psalm in one day. I want to come back and do a series on it. You anoint my head with oil. Um, anointing with oil was a symbolic thing and it was a medicinal thing. But what I didn't know is that one of the things about, about sheep is that because they're such nasty animals, they would get bugs. They would have bugs. You know, lice, whatever, mosquitoes crawling around. They would have them in their hair. They'd get in their nose. They'd get in their ears. And they'd lay their eggs. They'd have these larvae, you know, in, in and among their hair. I'm, I'm making, creeping you out already, right? So what would they do? Well, they, they didn't have hands. They didn't have opposable thumbs. So the sheep would literally bang their heads against the rock. You know, they would have these flies buzzing around. They'd have these bugs in their hair and they would bang and they would injure themselves. Sometimes they would kill themselves trying to get rid of the parasites, trying to get rid of the little things flying around in their head. So the oil was a mix of oil and sulfur that was an insect repellent that the, that the shepherd would put on the sheep. It's just another way that God takes care of us. Saying, look, you're going to have enemies. There's going to be valley of shadow of death. But I've got the rod. I've got the insect repellent. I'm here for you. I will take care of you. One more. My cup overflows. Obvious, right? God just says, hey, here's a brand brand new church campus for you in Homer Glen. He says, hey, we're going to open up the safe house. Hey, all these good things are happening. This is wonderful. I'm going to have another grandchild soon. God's just going to keep pouring things over. And I get all that. And I know there's going to be enemies. And I know there's going to be valleys of shadow of death. And I know there's going to be little bugs flying around in my head, you know, symbolically or not. Um, I, I get all that. But there's more to this. My cup overflows. There's more to this. It's so fascinating. The, the hospitality tradition, and I witnessed this in Africa. I, I had tea in a dung hut in Africa the first time I went. And, and a dung hut, okay, you get it? All right, just want to make sure. You know, I don't need to explain it anymore to you. So you go in this, this hut made out of mud and and. and stuff and and you go in and and it's hot and it's dark and you know and they what do they do they offer you tea because that's what you know that's what they do so you drink the tea and everything turned out great it was a scary experience but you drink the tea that's what you do right but the tradition for hospitality with a shepherd was when you came to visit someone they would pour you a full cup of tea and they would keep pouring you a full cup of tea until they were done with you being there And when it was time for you to go home, they would pour you a half a cup of tea. It was like last call, okay? You know what I'm saying? 
I mean, in my house, I just go upstairs and say, turn the lights out on your way out. But it was the same thing, right? It was like, okay, I think you're done here. And you get a half a cup of tea and you were supposed to go, okay, I get it. I'm out of here. Here we go. What, what David is saying is that with the good shepherd, with the, with the Lord as our shepherd, my cup always overflows. I can keep coming back. I am here all the time. God is never going to give me a last call. Ever. Isn't that rich? Surely goodness and mercy will dwell, will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. David was able to look back on his life when he faced the giant. He was able to look back on his life when he faced a jealous King Saul who wanted to kill him. He could look back on his life when his son tried to take over the throne, Absalom. There were times when David's enemies appeared to have the upper hand. There were times when the the enemies and the parasites and the valley of the shadow of death was all around him. But he was able to look back and say, you know what? When I admitted that I was a sheep and I trusted you and I let you lead me, you took me to the right place. I think David was also able to look back and realize what happens when you don't let those things happen because David committed adultery with Bathsheba. He murdered her husband. He knew what it was like to have his reticular activation system set to spirit, and he knew what it was like to have it set to flesh. If I could rewrite the 23rd Psalm according to setting it to the flesh, what David would probably agree with would be that it would sound something like this. I am my own shepherd. I am now in want. I make myself lie down in brown pastures. I lead myself into turbulent waters. I kill my soul. As I walk through the valley of death, I fear everything. My enemies devour me. My head is anointed with shame. My cup is empty. Surely heartache and resentment will follow me all the days of my life, and I'm going to dwell in the house of trouble for a long, long time. Again, I don't think this is about eternity. Eternity is taken care of by Jesus on the cross. This is about how I want to live now. David was called a man after God's own heart, and he knew how to live as a sheep letting the shepherd lead him, and he knew how to to live. He knew what it was like to live with with his mind set to the flesh and do those things, and he knew which was better. He knew the path of righteousness was the place where he should have been. So do you. I read a great story this week about a Broadway play that was, uh, had a part in it where there was going to be a, a, a minister that was going to read the 23rd Psalm in this Broadway play. So this veteran actor, older veteran actor, tried out for the part, and everybody thought, well, this guy's a shoe-in. He's perfect for the part. And he, he decided to, to try out for it. But also, a 70-year-old retired pastor decided he would try out for the part. He just, just thought maybe God wanted him to do this. And so these were the two that were trying out for it. And the veteran actor got up, and he started reading the 23rd Psalm. And of course, he had the right inflection, and you know he, he knew all the right things to say, and he just did it in a very dramatic way. He was a great orator, and everybody thought, wow, that was unbelievable. Nobody could do better than that. Then the old retired minister got up, and he started to read. He started to quote, the Lord is my shepherd. And he stumbled, and, and, and he faltered. His voice cracked several times, and he broke down weeping several times while he read it. Finally got through it. Everybody was really still and hushed. And after it was all said and done, they gave the part to the minister. 
Somebody asked the veteran actor about it later, and he said, how did you get beat out by a guy who's never even acted before? And the veteran said, you'd have to have been there. See, I knew the psalm, but he knew the shepherd. That's what will restore your soul. It's not about memorizing scriptures. It's not about doing all the right things. It's about getting to know the shepherd. Now, there's a still water part of this that I need to, I need to break off on here for a minute because we're going to do mass baptisms. I had 47 people already do it this weekend and uh, just a couple of services, and maybe it's time for you to do it. Every time in the New Testament when someone decided they wanted to let God be their shepherd, it was followed by the sacrament of baptism. We call it baptism. It means to immerse. It means literally they did it in rivers or in big bodies of water because it literally meant dying to yourself and rising up as Jesus again. On the very first day when when Peter preached the very first sermon, he said, hey, here's what you need to do. You need to repent and be baptized, be immersed. That's what that word meant. Every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. And we read that 3,000 people that day gladly received his word and they were baptized. Instantly that day, they went and got baptized. And we look in the Bible, and there are a number of instances we could look at. Almost every conversion experience in the Bible has the baptism happen immediately. Philippian jailer, at that very hour of the night, which evidently was the middle of the night, he and his whole family got baptized. Ethiopian guy, he's like, look, there's water right there. I want to do it right now. There was urgency to baptism. They they felt like it was something that that wasn't, they weren't going to have a complete relationship with God until they did it. The reason we do it at Parkview, and the reason we're telling you, if you have never been baptized by immersion, you ought to come and do it today, is because Jesus told me to, all right? That's just it. Go and make disciples. I wrote a book about that, Life on Mission, of all nations, just got back from Africa, baptizing them, immersing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach him to obey everything I've commanded you. That's what God told. That was the last will and testament of Jesus, was for me to go and make disciples, for you to go and make disciples, and for us to baptize them and teach them everything I've commanded. And a lot of you are going to say, well, you know what, Tim, my parents baptized me when I was little, and I confirmed it later, and that's fine. But do you think getting baptized the way Jesus did will help you or hurt you as you set your spiritual reticular activation system to the Spirit? I mean, you know Jesus walked 60 miles through the desert to get baptized? John was out there in the desert baptizing people, and Jesus walked out there. And he could have walked out there and said, you know what, I don't need this. I was consecrated in the temple. I grew up in the synagogue. I'm 30 years old now, for crying out loud. It would be embarrassing to get baptized at this point in my life. And besides that, I'm perfect. I don't need to get baptized. But he didn't. Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. And John was like, whoa, wait a minute. I need to be baptized by you. Why are you coming to me? And Jesus, and, and then, let's do it this way. Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented, and as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water, and at that moment, the heavens opened up, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him, and a voice from heaven said, this is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Wasn't God pleased with him before? Yeah, he was. But there was something about this act of submission 
where God said, you know what? Everybody's paying attention. I'm going to part the heavens. I'm, 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 the Spirit's coming down. I just want everybody to hear me say this. Way to go, Jesus. It was about submission. The word baptizo was used a lot of different ways um, in the Bible, in Bible days. It wasn't just about baptism. It, it literally meant to immerse or to dip. If they were going to take a, a, a piece of cloth and dye it a different color, D-Y-E, and make it a different color, you know you can tie-dye things by just dipping part of the cloth in, right? But if you're going to really make it a different color, the whole thing has to change. The whole thing has to be immersed. Listen to this symbolism from the Bible. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized have clothed yourselves with Christ. Whatever baptism was, um, it was that important to them. Can I make it to heaven if I say no to baptism? You know what? Of course, the thief on the cross didn't get baptized. It's God's heaven. He can do whatever he wants. We do not believe that baptism saves you. But let me tell you what troubles me about that. You say, well, I, I don't think I want to get baptized. If you're saying you want to be a Christian, you want the Lord to be your shepherd, and, and you've never been baptized, and you never have any plans to get baptized the way Jesus was baptized, what you are saying is, Jesus, I, I know you died for me. I know that you suffered an agonizing death. I know that you commanded your followers to be baptized as a way of showing their devotion. But Jesus, I'm just not, not going to do it. I'm going to take a pass. I think, I'll just, I think I'll just skip this one. Is that really a good way to launch into your spiritual life? I know you say, well, I, I couldn't do it today. Why not? Nobody planned it out. Most of the people last night didn't plan it out. You say, well, I haven't had a baptism class yet. You just did. <laughs> say, well, I don't have a towel. Yes, you do. You say, well, I don't have a change of clothes. My car seat will get wet. I have a trash bag for your precious leather seats. Just set it right down and sit on it, okay? Well, what, what about all my stuff? I'll give you a Ziploc bag and you'll have all the things that you need. Everything is taken care of. My family's not here. This isn't about your family. It's about your family. Your real father's here. And in Christ, you are his son and daughter. Your real dad is going to look down and say, this is my son, this is my daughter with whom I am well pleased. If this is your day, don't make any excuses. I skipped my grandson's first birthday party and wore a Cubs jersey so that I could be here to baptize you this weekend. So you get in the tub. When, uh, when Paul was converted, Ananias' mentor said, Look, what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, and wash your sins away, calling on his name. We're going to have communion right now. We're going to pass the trays, have bread in the bottom cup and juice in the top cup if you're not from here. And you're welcome to commune with us if you want to join us. You don't have to be a part of Parkview. We're going to do the communion, and we're going to listen to a song. And if you want to get baptized, I want you to go right to the back of the auditorium. There are people there to take your stuff and we will baptize you, and we will keep baptizing you if it runs into the 11 o'clock service. It just doesn't matter. We are ready for you. If it runs into whatever is going to happen after this, it just doesn't matter. We are ready for you to get baptized. Let's pray together. Lord God, I just pray that you will be with us as we uh, 
as we figure out what it means to follow you. And if there are people in this room right now who've never followed you in the act of baptism, we had some great stories last night. Had some great stories, some families coming back together, some recommitments, some young people making first-time commitments, some man who'd had a stroke and could barely get in the tub who was recommitting himself to you. Just so many great stories, Lord. My, uh, my young friend from my girls' high school, so many things. I, I'm just I'm amazed at what you've done. Lord, I, I pray that you'll be with us now as we get ready for communion and as we think about baptism. Will you help us? Will you show us that you are our shepherd, that we are sheep, we're going to go astray unless we follow you, and that your ways are the right ways, and even through the hard times can we trust you? Lord, please help us to do this. And again, if there are people in here, I don't want to guilt them into getting baptized. I want you to prick their heart right now, like the guy who was in the parking lot, turned around and came back in last night, and have him get up and go to the back and get ready and let's do this. We're going to do it together. Thank you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.